Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, good morning. My name is Kent, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm a grateful, grateful, grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, appreciate Tom uh, introducing me. Right now, my heart rate's probably about 150. Um, I'm just not one that generally gets up like in situations like this. It's been interesting over the last week. I found my higher power has been up here in the attic, in the closets, in the crawl spaces. There's a lot of crawl spaces up there just kind of sorting out bits and pieces of my story. So I'm not really sure how this is going to go this morning. Um, but that's just kind of what's been going on. And I've been aware of that, and I, I really have been aware of that. And it, gets jumped, it jumps around a little bit, but I just want to just give a shout-out to Tommy uh, that I had. I had just gotten out of a treatment program in Atlanta. This was several years ago. Went to a meeting, took my wife to be with us, and just a simple handshake after the meeting. I'm sure I was just tw almost twitching uncontrollably in the chair, but he shook my hand and said, I'm glad you're here. I do not want to undersell what a simple handshake, a pat on the back, a word of encouragement, or a hug can do for people in the fellowship of AA. They don't have to be profound messages. You don't have to come out of the heavens with a light bolt of lightning and strike somebody with it, but it's that. Let me just uh, do a few preliminaries. I want to thank Tommy and I want to thank Bruce for inviting me to, to speak today to give my own version of my experience, strength, and hope. Uh, I want to thank them for that. Uh, I'll give you a few things. My sobriety date is February 6, 2006. Uh, my home group is the Satisfaction Group in Lexington, Kentucky. It's an open discussion uh, Saturday morning meeting at 8 o'clock. We usually have around 80 people there. And part of my tables is sitting back there now. we got Larry, Mike, and Dave sitting back there. Not only can they tell me what my home group is, they can tell you what chair I sit in that home group. Okay? Because I sit in the middle of my home group. Okay? I sit in the middle. And I try to stay in the middle of AA. I try to stay in the middle of AA. I'm grateful for my wife uh, for being here. And she has been supportive of everything that I've done in AA. Everything that I've done in AA. Um, we didn't know it was going to be my last year when we first got together. I, neither one of us knew that I was spiraling out of control, but we got together, uh, and I still had a year to run uh, with this deal before uh, I got into AA. And so we just didn't know that was going to be our story at that point, but that's what it is. Uh, I'm glad I see some of my other fellow people in recovery, my sister in recovery, Holly. May you always have three years more recovery than I got. <laughs> May you always have three more years than I've got. And um, I'm glad for good sponsorship. You know, I've had three sponsors. Um, there was a guy by the name of Scott. His name will show back up a little bit when I was in treatment. A guy by the name of George J. Uh, was my sponsor for eight years. And he had, he's the man that's had the most profound impact on my life other than my own father. I mean, he just brought the message about what my condition was, and he brought me what the solution was. And he actually, to top it all off, he spoke here four and a half years ago in this same speaking spot, the same speaking time, 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. He knew he was dying. He had liver cancer. 
He was to die four months after that in September. Okay? He knew he was dying when he spoke up here and gave this message. And my last conversation with George on the phone, uh, he was a solid member of this fellowship, solid member of this fellowship. And I asked him how he was, where he was, when he was, knew he was dying. And he says he was profoundly aware of the presence of the God of everywhere he turned. And this is a guy that knew he was dying. And then he said the words to me, he said, can't keep up the discipline. And I knew what he was talking about because George had taken the time to sit down with me, get into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, identify my alcoholism, and show me what a program of action, an AA solution was for me. And he sat down and he said, keep up the discipline, and I knew what he was talking about. Now, for me, this is an important piece of information to share with you, is that George had a sponsor named by Conley. Conley is deceased. Conley had a sponsor by the name of Pat, and Pat actually had correspondence with Bill Wilson. So there's this tiny little thread all the way from Bill Wilson to this microphone this morning. You know, it's just, you know, that's just, for me, that's just a profound thing. Now, my story, my story is my story, and I try to live in the day. I try to plan for tomorrow, next week, and stuff like that, but I actually learn about my recovery in hindsight. What I have on here today is what I call my retrospectacles, okay? Because I see everything in retrospect, so what comes out today is stuff that I've learned. I plagiarize, I, you know, do all these things that I've learned in this program, but in my story, my story, what I have to share is I don't have some of the chaos and the crises and the trauma and the drama and the bad accidents and being on the receiving end of things. That's just not my story, as it has been on some of you. It's just not my story. Actually, mine was more one of privilege, and you'll kind of hear that today. Both of my parents were in the home. When I grew up, I grew up in a small town back in Missouri. Both my parents were there. In hindsight, my father was an alcoholic. Not many men keep a refrigerator full of beer down in the basement, but I never saw that type of behavior. You know, hard liquor was under the cabinets, beer was down there, but I just never saw that. They were very loving parents to the best of their ability. And through high school, uh, I was aware that I just quite didn't fit in, and we've kind of talked about that. Some of us have kind of referred to that, that I just didn't quite fit in, but I just thought it was adolescence or whatever it was, or somewhat unique or introverted or whatever. I had a best friend in high school, but I really never fit in with anybody per se. Um, didn't have that little click that I fell in. I wasn't an athlete, really wasn't a nerd. I was kind of at the end of the 60s and the 70s. And, again, a lot of protest and people didn't like authority, and I was kind of part of that group. But there really wasn't. I had kind of a spiritual walk, went to church, participated in some of those functions and the such. And that was, to me, just kind of what I did growing up. It was a small town. And then this would have been back in the 60s and early 70s. And they would just stick you on the bicycle in the summertime and just say, come home for dinner, and that was it. You know, and that's what we had. Be going to play baseball, head, go head to the pool, whatever it was. And just there wasn't a lot of the stuff that we had here. Around my probably junior or senior year, uh, I was looking at what I might want to do with my, you know, afterwards and stuff like that. Both of my parents, both of my parents had had college educations. And I decided I wanted to go to medical school. I applied, and lo and behold, I got in. And so at age 18, I moved to Kansas City, moved to Kansas City. Up to this point, I had not had any alcohol use, nothing ever, anything else. 
But at age 18, I moved to Kansas City to start off in medical school and the such, and two people made a distinct impression on me. One was a name by the name of Robert Wheely, who introduced me to drinking, and a woman by the name of Carol Vatterop, who introduced me to smoking weed. Okay, those were the impressions that I got. And when I started engaging in those behaviors, all of a sudden I had a group I could hang with. I could hang with. I was a bunch of guys that we went out with. We would start drinking, and we would go out on Wednesday nights. We'd go out on Friday nights. We had a date that was safe for Saturday night, but that was kind of our kind of our routines that we would do, be doing, that we would be drinking on that. And I liked the effect of alcohol. Now, I'm one of those individuals... I always admired those people that could wake up without hangovers, but that's not my story. I would wind up with these horrific hangovers usually after those evenings. You know, everybody orifice doing whatever it wanted, you know, shaking, all that such, and I would just feel actually horrific. But I don't ever remember having the thought that if I quit drinking, those hangovers would go away. When I was a young boy, probably about age six, my mother had made a whole bunch of divinity candy, candy for Christmas one time, just pure sugar. And I ate a whole bunch of that stuff and got god-awful sick. I have never had a piece of divinity since then. <laughs> I just got off. But I don't remember ever having that with alcohol. And I'm here to share with you, I never even liked the taste of alcohol. There are those of you that like beer, you like your bourbon, you like your wine. I'm happy for you if you like that. That was just never part of my story. I did like the effect. I did like the effect. Um, I liked, if you really want to know, I like cho- Sonic chocolate milkshakes and I like sweet tea. Now, those are the things that I will drink and to enjoy the taste. I don't drink them to excess. Okay. So I got with my group of people, and as we often see, this is kind of where the true and the false started today. I saw my group of guys that we would be running and doing all these things, and that became my world. And I saw people that were studying and attending to their education and being, you know, self-disciplined with all of this stuff. And I just thought they were, they just didn't have a clue how to live life. I could actually remember looking at them and draw this square, that they were just square people and that they didn't know how to do this. But I really enjoyed that kind of, you know, the alcohol and the marijuana and all that kind of stuff. That just, I fit right in with that situation. And I really never, ever, ever at that point considered myself as having an alcohol or or a drug problem or anything. That just never, ever crossed my mind. But with the program that we have here, what I have learned is those aren't my problems. Those are the solutions. For myself, my problem is really identified on page 62 of our big book, selfishness and self-centered, that we think is the root of our problems. You know, It is the main root of my problem, selfishness and self-seeking. And what happens, and a book goes on to tell us that if I don't get rid of this selfishness, it will kill me, and my experience has shown that. Now, as an alcoholic, I realize that I am not the only selfish person. It is not something that alcoholics have a monopoly on. Believe me, I can see the world in general, and there are other selfish people in the world. But when you marry up my degree of selfishness and my self-seeking and my self-centered with my alcoholism, the combination is going to be tragic and catastrophic, and that was what my story was going to become. My first, my first sponsor, Scott, actually, when we got to that page, when we got to that page, he actually had me write down on the margin of my big books, selfish. That's the perception that this is mine. Self-seeking, what's in it for me. Self-centeredness, this is all about me. And that is a belief system that goes so far down to my core, we are just making, barely budging with that thing right now. 
you know. And so those are the things I made that. And it says, it says, we have to get rid of this or it kills us. God makes that possible. And I never, none of these things had any resonance with me at that time. That nothing whatsoever. And so I kind of can continue this behavior. And here's where some of this selfishness. It's not my drinking or my drugging I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about my selfishness at this point. That The ways that it kind of manifests itself. It was probably my second or my third year in medical school. And I was coming up on a higher level chemistry test, higher level chemistry test. And I knew that if I kind of got past this test, this was going to be the one that really kind of, if I got through here, that'd be okay. And I think the responsible individual would be such that they asked the tutor for the professor for a little bit more time or stuff like that. Or study a little harder, get with other students that were actually paying attention in class. But that never even occurred to me. I did the thing that seemed most natural to me, and that is I cheated. Okay, I got one of my classmates who was much smarter than I was. And I asked him at that time, they were big, big, big halls. They didn't have cameras and all these other monitoring devices. And I asked him to sit in front of me and prop his um, test results up on his knee. And that's why I cheated off his sheet just in front of me. You know, that was, that's one of the things. And now there's a line in Bill's story, you know, in Bill's story that uh, he said he commenced to forge the weapon that would one day, like a boomerang, turn around in its flight and all but cut him to ribbons. And there are some things that I have to deal with in a, on a daily basis, these little concepts that I have. Number one, better living through chemistry. Number two, the rules don't apply to me, okay? And three, if it's something Kent wants, Kent's going to get it. You know, that's just some of the things that these are the concepts that I still have to deal with on a daily basis. So this type of behavior just kind of continued on, and there'd be tests that I'd have to show up for and such like that, and I'd want to go out for one or two beers just to relax, and then this phenomenon of craving would kick in. I didn't know what was going on, but the phenomenon of craving would kick in. And next thing you know, when I planned to have one or two drinks to relax, I'd be absolutely shit-faced, and then I would have to take the alcoholic eye test. Do you see three lines, or do you see one line, you know? Uh, And that's how I would have to get home, and then that, that... really what my behavior was like at that point. But I got through medical school, graduated, and then subsequently came down to Lexington. Came down to Lexington, and this behavior followed me down here in the such. And I remember I was doing my internship year. And it's a, it's a fairly dramatic year, I'll be the first to admit. The first year right out of medical school in the, in the residency, a lot, lot of hours on call and stuff like that. And mine wasn't certainly as hard as some of the others. But the one little thing that I remember that just drives my selfishness to my very core is that one night I'd been on a stretch of call, and it had been, I was tired, and I was ready to go to bed. And um, they called me. It was probably like 3 o'clock in the morning. I would have to get up at 7. And they said, we have another person in the emergency room. We have another person in the emergency room. Uh, we're going to kind of get them stabilized, and then we're going to send them up to the floor, and then you need to go up and work them up. And I can remember sitting in my call room saying to myself, I hope that patient dies before she gets to the floor so I get three hours of sleep. That's the root of my problem. It's not the alcohol, not the drug. It's that degree of selfishness that would wish that someone's mother, someone's sister, someone's daughter would die so I could get two or three hours of sleep. I met my first wife after this. She liked to party like I did. And what I really aspired to be is I wanted to be a small-town physician. And so I kind of stayed in the Lexington area, 
my first wife, uh, was uh, a dentist, and we kind of got married and moved to a small town because I like living in a small town. And we um, moved to a small town north of Lexington called Paris, and I set and I set out to go ahead and build my own private practice. And I wanted to be a typical small town doctor. I had office hours, went to the hospital, took care of kids. Did everything but uh, do OB care, but it was just the typical life of a small town. That's what I aspired to be. Excuse me. And when we got up there, again, we had found the same, I'd found the same friends in Lexington that I identified back in Kansas City. We liked to party. We liked to party, and we just had all this stuff going on. And we started the partying, and then we'd have some parties at our, at our house up in Paris, and we had a few of them, but they started to get out of hand. They started to get out of hand. I'd grown up in a small town, and for any of you that have had that small town experience, you know that certain behaviors are just kind of frowned upon, and if you're trying to develop a good reputation, there are certain things that probably just aren't, are inappropriate. And we had one of those parties, and I go, eh, this isn't going to happen. I've got to put it down. And one of the stories that I greatly identify with in, in our big book is the carpet slipper man, because that's what I did. That's what I did. I said, we're going to have to cut this stuff out. And for 10 years, that's what I did. I put the stuff down. I don't really remember drinking, don't remember doing marijuana or anything like that. Um, but I do, um, you know, remember just saying, I'm going to put it down. I'm just going to put it down. And so I did that, and I became relatively satisfied and uh, very satisfied and successful with what I was doing. I had the respect uh, of my patients. I had the respect of my peers, the hospital. At one point, I was chief of staff in this small-town hospital. Um, and that everything was going, going swimmingly, as we would say. And then, around age 40, my disease popped back up, popped back up, popped back up. And I know I'm in an A meeting, but I can't share my story without a little talk about my drug circumstances. That just, that's just part of my story as it is. It's just there are some old-timers that oh, get throw them off the stage, but that's just part of my story. So <laughs> what I started doing is I used to, around, when I was around age 40, uh, you know, at that time, the drug representatives would come in, and they would just pour all sorts of samples in their thing, and they started giving us some pain pills there. And I was 40, working long hours. I used to be fairly active in the gym. I still try to get to the gym, but there were just all these things. I had various body aches and stuff like that, and I just started taking some pain pills. My intention was never to get the buzz like I used to in terms of the alcohol and the marijuana. I was not seeking that. I just wanted the pain to go away. And I found that when I took these pain pills, when I took these pain pills, the body aches went away. I was focused. I was more energetic. No buzz. I said, I'm good to go. And I said, just, just keep on bringing them in. I did, it was nothing that I wanted to do. I just thought I was more productive in the such. And that went on for several years, several years. But at one point, I just can remember looking back, do I want to take these pills or do I want to have a relationship with my wife? And the pills would win every time. Pills would win every time. And that just kind of crescendoed and just slowly and slowly and slowly. You know, I can see this as part of my alcoholism. I call it cunning, baffling, and powerful, like our literature talks about. And it is also very, very patient. So this is going on. The relationship with my wife was we were going opposite directions. 
or that's my perception. You have to remember everything I share today is my perception of things. And in 2002, I asked her for a divorce after 20 years of marriage. We had no children. We had both kind of sought out our career, so we set out, set out that. And I asked her for a divorce, caught her blindsided. You know, one, I can just tell you, one time I'd come home from a weekend trip, and she didn't bother to get off the couch to welcome me home. I go, shit. You know, this is, this is no good. You love me. I'm getting out of this thing. And I did. You know, I mean, it just, it doesn't take much for me to drum up the divorce lawyer up here real quick. You know, it just, I'm there in a heartbeat with any type of perceived mistreatment. But what happened was that I'd always aspired just to be a husband for all of my life. And that's in that situation. And I just, divorce hadn't been present in my family and as such. And then this is just kind of where the, this is where my disease really kind of said, okay, Kent, we're going to show you something. So what I remember one day, this is probably about six months after she had moved out, I was at the office, and the pills just weren't doing it anymore for me here. They just weren't doing it for me anymore. And I had some old school medicine that I'd had at the office for 20-some years. It was a bottle of Demerol. Old school opioid. Old school opioid. And I can remember grabbing hold of that bottle uh, one time and I got a syringe in my hand the other time in my other hand and I'm walking down this hallway everybody's gone in the office and the such and I can have this conversation with myself I said Kent you are taking this someplace you have no business going you are taking this a step you're walking through someplace you might not come back from I mean it was a very analytical intelligent full of insight conversation didn't stop me at all I remember going into my little office, pulling up a syringe, pumping it into my thigh muscle, waited about 30 minutes, and then I stood up and I go, I want to feel like this all the freaking time. <laughs> I would have had the issues with the presidency taken care of in the morning, Congress would have been taken care of that afternoon, and climate control would have been taken care of in about 24 hours. I mean, it just, I was ready to go. And Kent Davis had gone to Clark Kent. Okay, I was now in that situation. Little did I know that I had just opened the gates to my own personal hell. Walked right through. And I chased that for four years. Chased that for four years. Fortunately for me, in God's grace, I did not have total access to that Demerol all the time. I could get it frequently enough. And what really kind of captures what my personal hell was like was that I would be, I came dressed today like this for just a particular reason, because this is kind of what, the, what I would be wearing at work. And as I mentioned, February of 2006 is my sobriety date. So in basically this time of year in 2005, this would be, I'd be attired something like this. But little would the people know that had come to see me that prior to work that morning, I would have uh, gotten to the office a little bit earlier and I would have loaded up two syringes of Demerol. Okay? And they, I'd have a bunch of pills in my pocket and I'd be sitting there like this with my hand in my pocket. And I would be scheduled to walk into somebody's room to see them. And it might be your mother. It might be your wife, your spouse, your child. You had a fever 104. You had someone to that... And I was scheduled to walk into that room, and right before I would walk in that room, I would slip in the other room, and as quick as I just pulled out that ink pen here, I would pop it through my pants leg. 
and I would be walking right into your room. I would wear black pants so you wouldn't see any blood coming back. I wore black pants, but five seconds before I went in to see your most beloved individual, I just popped 100 milligrams of Demerol in my thigh muscle. I wanted to stop. I couldn't. I throwed things down the toilet, and I couldn't. And if it had not been for an intervention, I would not be standing here for today. I'm not one of those individuals that had the insight. I didn't know about the disease of alcohol and I'm a trained medical professional. I would see alcoholic who'd come to see me. I remember sitting one time, a crack addict coming in, and he had almost burned his index finger down to the bone just from his crack pipe just because of the heat. And I said, why don't you quit? Why don't you stop? I couldn't understand that they could not do that. I could not do that. I did not know. It's one of my greater, you know, there's so much embarrassment in my story that as a medical professional, I would think that I would have some idea about the disease of alcoholism, but I did not. Fortunately, I had an intervention. People that loved me enough, and actually it was most of my employees, so I could actually write another thing. There's a chapter in there to the employers. Now I could write to the employees. When your employer goes batshit crazy, and he is... You know, throwing sputum all over you and yelling at you and making unreasonable demands and you find bloody cotton balls and syringes around, you might want to do something. <laughs> but fortunately, an intervention, intervention. My sister drove in from Missouri. My wife threw me in the back of an SUV and they drove me down to Georgia. I was all I could do. I was a wounded animal in the back of that vehicle. And they took me to a place down there that I was going to stay for a while. At that moment, my medical license was suspended. The Kentucky Board of Medical Licensure says that you no longer have the privilege to practice medicine. And, they have, and I, did not, I did not hold to do that. See, when I graduated from medical school, I would gotten two very, very personal gifts. One was a gift from my grandmother, and it was a, a, a medallion that had a little symbol of a medical thing. And my father had given me a tea mug because he liked tea like tea. And on the tea mug, he goes, I toast your success. May you treat all with compassion and competence. And I, was not, I could no longer wear that medallion. It would just fly off my neck. And I could no longer treat anybody with compassion or competence. And I knew that. I knew that. The image that I wanted to present was over here. The reality was here. And the only way that the pain of this separation could be addressed was with what I was doing. That's the only way I could deal with that. And I had walked into that gray room, a gray room as I, at, that, at that very end, I was contemplating suicide. I'm on the outside, you would look at my house, I had art on the wall, I had a lot of travel, I had a nice sports car, and I was making plans on how to run that sports car into a bridge embankment and a tree. That plan was starting to come into focus and stuff like that. That was, I was ready to check out. I'd gotten to that point. I, one of the places that I identify so well with Bill's story he kind of describes that. He starts off the paragraph by saying no words. So he's already, pre, he's already kind of qualifying, but no words can tell the, the loneliness and despair I felt in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quick stand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I was overwhelmed. And you, the other day you re referred to that pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization. I have been to hell. I do not want to go back. Been to hell. I do not want to go back. Went through this rehab, and it's interesting, when I went to the individuals that decided where I was going to be going, I thought I was just going to go to this place and say, oh, you're going to go to counseling for a few weeks, and then we'll let you back go to work. But no. Uh, following after they shut my office down, following day, uh, the DEA showed up. 
Uh, the Kentucky Board of Medical Licensure and the nice big bland, just vans and just terrified my office staff. And later the IRS, too. We've talked about those acronyms initially we all run into eventually at some point in our story. Uh, but they took me down to Atlanta. Uh, and I, one of the times I remember is they said, well, you're going to go to detox. So they took me over to a hospital, go to a psych ward to detox. And again, my wife and my sister had been there. And I'm going down the hall accompanied by one of the attendance, and I could not look around and look at my wife and my sister. I was so full of shame and guilt. I just could not look at them at this point. It was, I was so horrific what had happened. Detoxed, went into this uh, rehab, and there was a spiritual-based program. I get actually, that's what I wanted to be. I knew something, I, somewhere down in there I knew I, I had a spiritual problem. I didn't know it to the extent or whatever, but I I uh, went to this uh, program down there, and then we just go to some religious service every Sunday, but they had to start working the steps, and that's where I got my first sponsor. His name was Scott, and he gave me those three definitions of what it is to be selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking, and we started getting into the steps, and I did the best that I could in that situation, you know. I'm in a rehab, um, and, you know, we're just starting to work the steps. I really had no idea what was going on, and I was still bringing my old uh, toolkit with me, and that's the one that Kent got, was used in all of this type of um, situations here, that I was trying to figure this deal out. I just, if I just figured it out, I was going to go off to treatment, and you all were going to give me three things. You were going to give me a little bit more self-discipline, a little better character, and a little better self-control. That's what I thought was going to happen, you know, and that's what I thought just uh, self-knowledge would fix me. I just lacked some information. Our book, again, dressed as that, self-knowledge would fix me. And I still was doing it kind of Kent's way. I was kind of doing it Kent's way. I was compliant. You know, I was compliant, but I was doing it Kent's way. And after a few months, you know, as, as I'm doing this, one, a couple of things, though, that I was really aware of, that I would be going to meetings and I would heal, hear people share, and I knew I wasn't getting it. I just knew I wasn't getting it. I just, I could kind of, and I go, I want, I want that. I really do, but for whatever reason, it's not really sinking in. And I really thought I was going to be one of these guys that would be sitting in the meeting, and there'd be two AA police come in, one under each arm, and just grab me up out of the meeting and throw me on the curb and say, Kent, you're just too dumb to get AA. We're sorry. We're going to disinvite you. Disinvite you. And I was doing this, and but Kent was still there, and that's the challenge with me. You know, pretty much on a daily basis, Kent was still there. So, for any of you who've been in rehab, you realize that after you've been there for a while, if you kind of follow the rules, they kind of move you to a little higher position. Not quite as much accountability, not quite as much oversight, and they moved me there. And within three days, I had broken four of their major rules. Four of their major rules. Didn't use. Didn't drink. But I broke four of the major rules. And um, they brought me back to the facility, and I was sitting in a little office room that had a little meeting table. And there's probably about four or five counselors just making this conversation, saying, Kent, what are we going to do with you? We just don't know what to do with you. And I can see this conversation going on. Uh, we, We can kick you out. We can send you to another program. But I didn't realize it at the time, but this is where my higher power stepped in. <coughs> my higher power stepped in. I was given the gift at that moment, and I can only recognize it in hindsight, 
I was given what I call my, it was the gift of clarity. Gift of clarity at that moment. I knew that if I got kicked out of there, I was going to die a worthless piece of shit. And if you knew about me, what I knew about me, you knew I was a piece of shit too. That was the first thing. I was given the clarity. There had been up here before, but it dropped down here. And for whatever reason, and I can't explain it, I have never lost that, that sense of clarity, that gift of clarity since then. I have this fatal disease called alcoholism. I know how it manifests itself in me. I know what will happen to me, and I know what will happen to each and every one who is anywhere close to me if my disease ramps back. So, number one, I was given the gift of clarity, and within a matter, I didn't have that insight two days before that or a day before that. I had Kent's perception of what was going on, but I was given this gift of clarity that I had this disease. And that's what, And then I, within a matter of 24 hours, I was given the gift of willingness. And I started doing what they told me. However funny I thought their rules were or whatever it was, I started doing those things. And I applied those same things to my AA program. I got with my sponsor, and when I was down there, uh, we were able to get through Pretty much, I guess, probably about steps one through eight. My first fourth step was just kind of a typical recovery checkbox, you know, that we did often in recovery. That's, again, that's the best I could do at the time. Got released from there after about, I signed up for the three-month plan. One week short of six months later, I'm getting out. Uh, And I still haven't figured out quite where to put it on my CV or my resume alumni of a long-term inpatient residential program for the treatment of alcoholism and drug addiction. I can't, haven't quite figured where to put that, so if anybody has any insights, please let me know. So I got back up here. This is where Tommy shows up. Tommy shows up. We, he, I'd come to trust the men. I had had a, a circle of men that, had kind of, that I had bonded with down there. I had a sponsor and several other men, some I still stay in the country. You know, what's what I love about AA is they've just taken me under their wings they kept me accountable. We want you to call. We want you to call. We want you to call. We want you to do this, do that. Uh, and two things that they had actually, when I started my recovery, I do want to go back on this part. Two things that when I first got to AA and did that treatment program, two things they gave me to do. And I continue to do those to this day. One, they said, Kent, we want you to make your bed. Okay? And I make my bed every day. It is a life of intention that I can follow by making my bed. The other thing that they wanted me to do is to hit my knees in prayer. They said, we don't want you to sit down. We don't want you to lay down. We want you to assume a physical position of humility because you don't really have enough to write to get through this program. So that's something that I do to this day. I hit my knees in prayer and I make my bed. That's where my recovery program started. So when I came up here, the guys that I had trusted, they say, we want you to drive. This is about probably a six-hour drive. When we discharge you from here in Atlanta, we suggest that you get to a meeting in uh, Lexington that night. This was on a Saturday, last Saturday of July of 2006, I can remember. And that's when we went to a meeting, and I don't remember anything else about the meeting other than Tommy coming up to me, shaking my hand and saying, glad you're here, glad you're here. So then, kind of start jumping in. My medical license was suspended, so I could go to a lot of meetings at that time. Had a little part-time job that one of our friends had just allowed me to kind of come into her office and shuffle, shuffle some paper and kind of look busy, but she gave me the freedom to come and go at that point. So I kind of came uh, in and started going to meetings. I knew I needed to get a sponsor again. So the first guy that I asked 
well-respected member of our community, but we could just never get connected, never get connected. But uh, we tried for several weeks, several weeks, and so um, kept on trying to make that work, and it just didn't work. And I, I was feeling like that car, that you're kind of a car, and you're kind of going up. It's not a really steep, icy road, but all of a sudden I knew I was losing traction. I said, I, I, something's got to change here. And so... At that time, I said, I, I, this isn't going to work with this other guy. So then I um, asked George J. to be my sponsor. George J. to be my sponsor. And this gentleman then, as I said, I just have to give, I cannot overemphasize the profound impact that a sponsor's had in my life. I asked him to be my sponsor. And I kind of mentioned to him what I'd done through treatment and stuff like that. And he, he was very nice about all that and stuff like that. He says, well, we're going to go back to page one, and we're going to sit back, and we're going to sit down one-on-one and get into the big book of, of big books of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, again, when I'm working with guys at this point, I like to point out certain words to them. Our, our big book has certain words. It says, it's, you know, in the very first word it says, this book was written just to show precisely how we have recovered. It answers this question specifically, lack of power. Where am I supposed to find that power? That's exactly what this book's about. These are not fudgy words, folks. These are not fudgy words. We have been given a textbook for recovery. Our recovery is based on finding a power of our own, of our own understanding. And when we follow, follow these steps, and then I will have that experience. So I got together with George, you know, and he wasn't really a fuzz, war, fuzzy and warmy guy. You know, he was just kind of one of these guys. I remember one time I tried to, tried to chat him up about his family, and he goes, well, what's that have to do with recovery? I go, okay. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. We never went out to dinner together. We never drank coffee together, but we would meet at a meeting, and we would meet at his – he was a photographer by trade, and we would meet at his meeting, and we got together with that. And so we got into the big book, and he helped me. When I got into – when I went into Mar, I thought I was a drug addict. That's what I called myself, let's be honest. That's what I thought my problem was, but I felt more comfortable in AA. I couldn't – make the thing and make the connection and I, no offense and you know I go it takes someone with real cojones to be a drug addict anybody can be an alcoholic but I just you know that was just that's you know that was just my perception of it and they never even addressed my alcohol use but I think but George knew where to find it in me he knew to find it in me and so we had to go back to my 20s and 30s and we had to look at that thing to look at that phenomenon of craving. And I have that times when I expect it once or twice. I mean, my first wedding night, we were going to have one or two glasses of champagne, and I'm shit-faced, and there was no honeymoon activity that night because of that. I mean, that's what it looks like in me. I have the phenomenon of craving. And so when I'm working with guys, and there's a lot of us out there that, what do you got, you know, that if I can help identify their... their um, their craving, their their activity of craving, their experience with craving, then I can kind of work with them. If I can't, then I'm, I'm putting their life and my life in things, and I suggest that they maybe want might want to try another fellowship. Uh, but I realize that I'm dealing with a life and death matter here, so I'm clear on what I, I try to do with this situation. So we got back in the book. He looked at that phenomenon of craving. He brought out other parts of the book that I think there's a passage on 101 that says anything that I try to do to hide my alcoholism will wind up with a bigger explosion than ever. And again, we focused on that selfishness and that self-centeredness that God makes that possible. Uh, And I love that part. And then we got to the third step prayer. 
you know, I got to the third set prayer, and he says, Ken, I want you to read this prayer before we just make sure what you're, you're praying here, you know. That, uh, and particularly, it's interesting that our first really formal prayer in our literature, the first thing it addresses is that bondage of self. And so we got that third set prayer, and he says, okay, we're going to kneel and hold hands. I go, sheesh. I mean, what am I going to be doing kneeling and holding hands with another man saying a prayer? But I was willing to do that because that had been a gift to me. And then he sat down with me and he says, okay, we're ready to do this inventory thing. And so he said, we're going to write this baby out. So he didn't use the word baby, but that's the, we're going to write this out. We want you to bring a composition book because that's, that's what George used. He just did one of those composition books. And we're going to write this out. And we're going to write down uh, your resentments. We're going to write your white resentment it is. We're going to look at how it affects you, self-esteem, personal relationships, ambitions, material security, emotional security, and fear. You know, someone mentioned it to to that. This still shows up in my self-esteem is I don't think I have what it takes. And the truth of the matter is I don't without God in my life. And that's just what I've learned from that. And then we got into that fourth column, what I call the fourth column, and I had never, ever, ever considered that that was, I had a part in any of this. If you had to deal with who I had to deal with and what I had to do deal with, you would do what I did. That made perfect sense to me. But then I had to look at where I had been selfish, where I had been dishonest, where I had been self-seeking, and where I had been fearful. And that concept was never apparent to me until I got into the fourth step of Alcoholics Anonymous in that, in that inventory. Two things really bring that home. When I was in treatment, and I was ranting and raving, ranting and raving about that wife number one, about uh, how she didn't want to do what we were going to plan, what kind of plans I had for our life and such like that. And I'm like going off on her. One of the counselors just calmly looked at me. And again, I'd been married to this woman for 20 years. And he goes, well, what did she want? I didn't know. I had never in 20 years asked her. It wasn't even on my radar. And then to follow that up, let's just kick Kent when he's down. Uh, when to follow that up, he says, you're talking about this love thing. What's your definition of love? And at age 51, I didn't have one. Didn't have one. I have one now. It's an act of interest in the welfare and the well-being of another. That's, that works for me. You all can pick your own. And that's what works for me. But I didn't have those things. Those are the things that, again, just continue to bring home to me this, this spiritual condition. I have this spiritual malady, this spiritual illness, this spiritual sickness that I have. That this just this bondage of self, bondage of self that I have. So I got into that fourth step, that fourth calm and stuff like that. And I gained a lot of insight with this. You know, I just asked myself, what about this thing is mine? You know, in my whole life, this is my wife, my house, my bank account, my car, my job. I mean, everything is, has the word mine in front of it. And that, I have to address that on a daily basis. And so he said, six and seven, you're going to do that. Eight and nine, make a list of all the people that you have harmed. And I went home and made a harm list, and I was able to follow his directions and go, you know, this is how I perceive that I have harmed you. What would you like? Is there anything you would like to add to that? Because there are things that I harm people that I had no, no um, awareness of what I had done to them. 
and let that, and the bottom line is what can I do to make it right? And then I'm done with that stuff. We're done with that particular individual. For me, for me, the ninth step is really where the freedom started. Because as a result of the ninth step, I can go any place where I want to go, Walmart, work, any place, and I can look people in the eyes. And if there's someone that I've missed in my harm months that I've kind of missed, I mean, there were some harms that I'm sure that I was doing when I four years of pills and all that other stuff while people were actively coming into my work seeking medical care. I can't, I don't have any recollection of that whatsoever. But if they were to come into me today, I would know how to address that because of that, that particular spiritual tool. You know, I do like that in our, I love the way that our big book is designed. I love the way the chapters are. I just love the way they're laid out. It's just an evidence of some divine design. So we have the first chapter that we really read is the doctor's opinion. That tells me that I actually have a disease. It's not a lack of character or personality flaw. It's just actually a disease. Uh, we read a little bit about Bill's story just to hopefully that, that I can identify with some of those things in there. Next chapter, there's the solution. They're telling me about the solution before I'm even clear on what the problem is. Okay? And they have this one thing, there was nothing left for me to do except just pick up this spiritual kit of spiritual tools placed at my feet. And these men and women that came into my life and they restarted in there. And there's one tool, make your bed. Another tool, pray with your knees. Another tool, inventory. They kept on pulling these tools out and showing me how to use them because I had no clue how to use them. So I just, and it's a canvas bag. It has those little wooden handles on it, and it just opens up like that, and it has a flat bottom. I can tell you exactly what that toolkit looks like with me. And they show me. And the inventory, the ninth step I'm in, that's where I really have gotten a lot of freedom. What I would like to focus now, though, is particularly on steps 10, 11, and 12. That's kind of where I'd like to focus on how George brought this to me. And so we got to step 12, and I knew George's program. I knew it pretty well. And when we got to step 12, it says, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. And he goes, what does constructive mean to you? And I really didn't know, so I just kept my mouth shut. And he says it means pen to paper. We call it inventory, self-examination, whatever you choose to care. I can call it both. But that's one of the tools that I do on a nightly basis is I still have that composition book and I go upstairs and I kind of look at my day. Sometimes I've already identified it is before I sit down. But I look at the resentment or the fear and I write it out. I write it out. And once again, what is that resentment or fear and how does it affect my self-esteem, my personal relationships, my ambitions, my material security? And my material security is just not always about finances. It's about my time. In my case, my time and my money are interchangeable. You know, I spend time, I save time, I waste time, all these kind of things. I use it so it might not hit me in my wallet, but it will hit me in my, you know, where I want to spend my time and and such. And so I'll look at that material security, and then I have to look at my selfishness and my my dishonesty, my self-seeking, and my fear. But here's where the... Here's where the divine design really comes into focus on what I call the great reality. I get to look at the divine design out there, but I get to tap into this great reality in there. That it says in our tenth step that we become God conscious. That's what it says in there, become God conscious. And that that it, what we do is it automatically, in me, it kind of begs the question, Instead of being, instead of my, me being selfish, where would my higher power be selfless with that particular situation? Instead of being a man of dishonesty, where would I be a man of virtue or truth? And that's a capital truth. It's not a truth that I make up. 
See, my whole world and my way of interacting on a daily basis, I call it my four E's. My emotions, my experiences, my expectations, and my excuses. Those kind of are what define me throughout the day. But there's a capital truth that is kind of the anchor of all of our, of our program. And through these steps, we get to tap into that. We get glimpses of it. We get experiences of that. And so I get, instead of being a man of dishonesty, and I'm still a very dishonest man, I just do what I call the lie of omission. I don't do the commission as much as I used to, but I just don't give you all the facts. I just manipulate the information just enough to kind of hopefully satisfy you and keep me out of trouble or get what Kent wants. And instead of being a man of being a self-seeking behavior, where can I be a God-seeking man? And instead of being a man of fear, where can I become a man of faith? And so all of those things push me in that direction, and I actually get a vision of what that looks like as a result as it pertains to that particular resentment or that particular fear. And a lot of these things are highly repetitive. I've been dealing with some of these things and working on some of these things, but I get an idea that I'm moving to that area. And then step 11, sought through prayer and meditation. You know, and again, the 11th step prayer in particular is just a nice little nice little prayer that I can use, meditation that I can use, and again, our literature talks about that when these things are all interwoven, the self-examination and prayer and um, meditation are interwoven on a regular basis, it becomes a basis for life, and that's been my experience. That's when I do these on a regular basis, uh, my life uh, is just, you know, beyond compare, and then we get to you do the 12th step. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Early on, an old-timer said to me, the most important word in the 12 steps is the. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to alcohol and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So that's step 10, 11, and 12 are the ones that George showed me. That's the discipline of which he was referring to. And I had the same experience that our book talks about, that when I got to step 10... Okay, I hadn't developed any more willpower. I hadn't developed any better character. I hadn't developed any more self-discipline. But the most miraculous thing in my entire life that I have ever experienced, bar none, is this compulsion to destroy myself and everything around me with alcohol and drugs was removed. It just left. God took it away. Our literature promises that. It says that's what will be our experience, and that's open to everybody or anybody that practices these steps. And so steps 10, 11, and 12, that's what happened to me. I don't, I don't worry about getting up, waking up and getting drunk today. Now, I'm not so naive that this gift of clarity might disappear someday. Willingness might disappear because I see a lot of people that, not a lot, but I see people frequently enough that have had some long-term sobriety, and for whatever reason, their stories, when they relapse, it's always the same. I quit praying. I quit calling my sponsor. I quit going to meetings. And I quit, I quit this alcohol. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, they've disappeared from the meetings. And they're lucky if they get back. That has been the experience of the 12 steps for me. Now, what I do, uh, my wife is in Al-Anon. What I refer to our life now is we actually have an embarrassment of riches. It's not that despair of hellish existence anymore. And I'm not talking about just of, of material things, but we get to walk a spiritual walk. She's an Al-Anon, 12 steps, stuff like that. One of the meetings that I like to go to on a regular basis is a Friday night meeting where both Al-Anon and 
uh, AA people show up, and we all have the same uh, solution, and that's um, the 12 steps. But I get to hear from the Al-Anon side the impact that I have because one of those perceptions is I thought I was only doing all this stuff to myself. I didn't think any of my behavior impacted anyone or anything around me. But now it was just I affected everything. It was like I had all my friends and acquaintances and coworkers standing around a big mud puddle, and I would jump right in the middle of it, and it just splashed each and every one of them. It's each and every one of them. Some of them won't have anything to do with me to this day. Others, others do. That's just the nature of the pain and tragedy of our disease. But again, we have an embarrassment of riches. We get to walk. We do not do it perfectly. I do not do it perfectly. And I'll be quite honest, I probably write about my wife on my inventory more than anything else. That's just the way. Yeah, that's just the way. Those individuals and things that are the closest and that mean the most to me when they're not behaving in a manner that I want them to behave, I have to look at And it's not her problem. It's my problem. And it's this problem of asking her what she wants to do and actually following through with some enthusiasm. I don't always enthusiasm. It's asked, telling her what I, that I love her and that when I love her that I know what I'm talking about there. Um, you know, that's just the nature of what this disease is, or what the, this program has brought me. You know, I love AA. I love AA. I love the life that I've been given. I mean, I have this disease called alcoholism. I'm good with that today. I'm good with that. And there are times that I can actually say I'm actually grateful that I am an alcoholic. Because I don't think there's anything in life that would have taken me to my knees. I can think of all sorts of things, and I've seen it in any number of people just by the nature of my work. I've seen people with cancer. I've seen people with all sorts of horrible illnesses and diseases. Alcoholism was the disease that took me to my knees. God, at various times, stepped in and put people in my life that helped me when I could not help myself. You know, I love AA. I think we're, I think we're just about, I'm just about done here. I can just tell we're at the end of the story. So I just uh, appreciate you all letting me hear. I like the fact that we're working on the, um, that we're all walking this highway. Oh, one last little thing. Before I got here, I used to lie in my bed, used to lie in my bed before I got here, and I would see the sun coming through the blinds. And I knew another day I was going to have to spend another day in hell. I had one day, I had one word in my vocabulary, that was the F-bomb. And I used it as a noun, verb, adjective, every complete step. Okay. Nowadays, I try not to use that word. I hope it didn't show up in my talk today. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. Progress, not perfection. But, but now... There are, last I caught, I just casually count at one time, there's about 18 or 19 words for this higher power in our literature, at least in the, about 8 or 19. But the two that I have most attractive to me is that I get to have a daily re- relationship with a higher power that I call the Father of Light. He has given me a new way of speaking. He's given me a new way of thinking. He's given me a new way of behaving, and I'm aware of those things because I know how Kent was wired, and I know when this, these things show up, I know how that. And the other thing that I get to do today is I get to walk in the sunlight of the Spirit. I like these things. These things are impactful to me because I spent so much time in that dark hell that I like having a relationship with this Father of Light. And today, I get to walk in the sunlight of the Spirit. I appreciate your attention and your respect, so thank you very much.